The Emerald Lane podcast is supported by the generosity of its listeners. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider contributing at mlane.com. That's em-lane.com. Your donations will allow us to continue with the focus and effort required to produce these finely crafted episodes. Now, without further ado, the Emerald Lane. Once people lock into their head what a technology is, they get very fixed around that idea and it doesn't leave them much room for understanding that the next time they see that technology it will wear a different face. And the next time they see it after that, it will wear a different face. And the next time you see it after that, it will wear a different face. Right? And it's not that all of these faces are basically the same face over and over again like Doctor Who, where it's the same set of capabilities with new graphic design. It's that you actually get an entirely new generation of capabilities. And the jumps are not unfamiliar to us, right? Phone used to mean an electromechanical box connected to a wall by a cable with, you know, something like 48 volts running down it to operate the ringer and the microphone. That used to mean phone. Then phone became something like a little Nokia with a bunch of buttons on it, and it was wireless, but it didn't have any web access. Then phone meant something with a little screen that you, know, you could just about browse a WAP site on. Then phone became something with all of those features and a camera and a video recorder and an MP3 player. And then it became you know, phone. And if you pick up somebody's modern phone, you know, iPhone 6, Samsung S7, something along those kind of lines, what you have is a very, very functional laptop that they left the keyboard off running an extremely sophisticated operating system that's actually much more user-friendly than your desktop in most cases. And we still refer to this as phone, similarly with blockchain to government or large companies. Blockchain is the first version they saw of it. They're still back wondering, you know, is it a dial tone? Hands up if you haven't actually ever heard a telephone dial tone. Right? It's a thing which has become part of the past. The static that you see at the beginning of HBO shows, you know, that was cosmic rays interacting with electric wire loops called antenna, right? You see it on YouTube as well. The actual original mechanism which gave rise to that static is long gone. You know, why do you have a 3D printout of the save icon? <laughs> That's actually a floppy disk. What's a floppy disk? Right. So, one of the things that we have to start teaching people when we introduce them to a new technology is we have to introduce them to the idea that they're getting on a ride which is going very steeply up a curve. So this is this thing called the blockchain. Today it looks like this. Tomorrow it will look a little different. The day after that it will look different again. And five to ten years from now we expect it to be kind of sort of something like this. 
and introducing people to the idea that what you're showing them is a little seedling in a pot for a tree that will be 100 meters tall with roots that go down 35 feet. You know, that sort of thinking is quite difficult for us to do because what we're introducing people to is not objects, we're introducing them to processes. This is the blockchain process. It's an evolutionary system that will produce a bunch of different technologies one after another, and that evolutionary system is self-funding to the tune of several billion dollars. It has hundreds of activists that have made enough money from that process. Message from the victor via satellite Well, it's nice to know I'm doing something right Guess it's my lucky night Message from the leader on the giant screen We need to talk about the way that it could be In 2023 Oh Waiting for the start to go Waiting for the wind to blow Right through my aching hunger anytime soon. What's a type zero civilization and are we near being a type one in your view? We physicists rank civilizations not by politicians and great men and great leaders. We rank them by energy. A type one civilization has mastered planetary energy. All the energy of the sun that falls on their planet, the weather, earthquakes, volcanoes, they, they play with hurricanes. That's type one, like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. 
A type two civilization plays with stars. That's the next level of energy. And Star Trek and the Federation of Planets is just beginning to play with stars and nearby star systems. That would be a type two civilization. Then there's type three, galactic. They have harnessed the power of maybe a hundred billion star systems like Independence Day, uh, like Star Wars, like the Borg on Star Trek. Now on this scale, are we type one that control hurricanes? Are we type two that control star systems? Are we type three that roam the galactic space lanes? No, we're type zero. We get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal. But we can dream. In fact, if you take out a calculator, you can show that we are about 100 years away from being a type one civilization. And you see evidence of this everywhere I go. Uh, the internet, what is the internet? The internet is the beginning of a type one telephone system. So we're privileged to be alive to see the birth pangs of a type one civilization. What language will this type one civilization speak? Probably English. It is already the number one second language on the planet Earth, the language of science, commerce, art. If you take a look at uh, the economy, we're witnessing the beginning of a type one economy, the European Union. These nations have slaughtered each other ever since the ice melted 10,000 years ago, and now they're forming a single block. And why are they ganging together? To compete against us, NAFTA. So we're seeing the beginning of a type one economy. We're seeing the beginning of a type one culture with rock and roll. Uh, what is blue jeans? What is rock and roll? What is Chanel and, and uh, Louis Vuitton? The beginning of a type one culture. And there is a backlash. There are some people who don't like this transition to type one. People who are fundamentalist, terrorists, for example, they prefer more, be more comfortable not 100 years in the future. They would rather be 500 years into the past. So we see the birth pangs of the beginning of type one. And I personally think that is perhaps the greatest transition in the history of human civilization. From the fragmented, rather backward civilization of today, to a planetary civilization a hundred years from now. Next call, St. Petersburg, Florida. Gary, go ahead. It's a fire, a bright daylight, deep inside, you and I.
so gone Hear what they say Don't you listen to what they say
I get in my uh, in my timeline is just the most insane links to speeches and talking about the future. This guy did a uh, he gave us he had a sit down Q and A at this conference called Recode, which is like the biggest I don't know what you call it. Uh, it's like code conference. It's like just technology conference. Yeah, and it was like an hour. Hour long, he's talking about the future, talking about autonomous cars. This guy asked him in the Q and A about whether or not we were in a simulation. Or not. Oh God! He basically goes on. So, to talk so the about idea is right. Any sufficiently advanced civilization would create, could create a simulation that's like our existence, and so the theory follows that may, maybe we're in the simulation. Have you thought about this? And a lot. Are we? <laughs> are we even I in hot tubs? To know. So are much so it had to be banned from a hot tub. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's not the sexiest conversation. Are we in? Are we in? Um, the, 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 I mean, I think here's, in my mind, like the, the, the strongest argument for, the, for us being in a simulation, probably being in a simulation, I think is the following. Um, that that 40, called 40, 40 years ago, we had Pong, like two rectangles and a dot. That right. was what games were. Um, now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. And soon we'll have virtu you know, virtual reality, we'll have augmented reality. Um, if you assume any rate of improvement at all, um, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality. Just in indistinguishable. Um, um, then you just say, okay, well, well let's imagine it's a 10,000 years in the future, uh, which is nothing in the evolutionary scale. Um, so, um, so, so given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or on a PC or whatever, and there would probably be, you know, billions of such, uh, you know, computers or set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions. So Tell me what's wrong with that argument. Is the answer yes? <laughs> the argument is probably. I mean, I just like, is there is there a flaw in that argument? I mean, someone, but someone. I'm not that, sure what but, the error. Right, no, no, the argument makes sense. So the assumption then is that somebody beat us to it, and this is a game. No, no, there's a one in billions chance that this is base reality. Oh, okay. What do you think? Well, I think it's one in billions. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Mean, this, that seems to be like clearly what the, you know, what, the, what, it, what it suggests. Right. And, and actually, I mean, arguably we should hope that that's true because otherwise if, Again, if civilization reality. stops advancing, then that may be due to some... And he was like, like if, you, if you think of a a society or a civilization that's even 40,000 years ahead of us. It asserts that they could have made a simulation. We could be in their simulation, you know? And, and the guy's like, so do you think it's true? And he's like, according to my calculations, I think it's, I think it's one in billions chance that this is base reality. Meaning, you know, that one in billions chance that this is true, a true reality. Mm -hmm. The chances are stacked against us 
it, it, it's more probable that we're in a simulation. What does that, you know, um, what does that do for us? Hypothesis that we are uh, a simulation. We we are our own AI, right? That are inventing AI. That we are inventing other simu simulated realities, right? Well, it depends. We could be our future selves could have created us as AI, or we could be AI of some other civilization that's not human, and now um, we're creating our own AI. What What do we do with it? And I'm not I'm not saying like let's not know it. I'm not saying like. I'm not saying that that's your mission in life to to investigate that theory, right? That you shouldn't. But I'm asking, what is the awareness of that? What's the impact of that? Knowing, knowing the answer to that. That's the question. What do we do with know. that? How does that affect society? I just I find it interesting that we are asking that question or coming into the that's coming into our consciousness as we're inventing AI, as we're coding and our code has become so sophisticated, our technology, that's when we've woken up to the fact that, oh my God, maybe we're in a simulation. I just, I just think that's an interesting correlation. Now, what do we do with it? I think time's going to tell. I think we just, it's, it's very fringe right now. <clears throat> it's more in the technology, coding, computer, philosophical, quantum mechanics realm, but most people don't, that's a ridiculous claim to say that we're in a simulation. If you go to a common man and say, hey, it's a possibility we could be in a divine digital simulation, what do you think? And most people are like, right, exactly, as they should. You know, what I think it is, honestly, it's the dawning of the scientific understanding of God. The cosmic quantum, quantitative understanding of a creator, machine, architect. As we're coding, we're, we're thinking about, we're creators and we're coding, creating civilizations. We are thinking that, oh, we are code. And we are code. We're bits and we're, we're quantum molecules. And so we're seeing, we're code, actually. Our whole reality is code. And, and, you know, the sun is rotating at a certain speed and the earth goes on certain axes and orbits. And it's a very defined, seasonal, cyclical thing. We're seeing that there are rules. You know, you can't jump but so high because gravity has allotted a certain kind of, you know, rule set. So basically, we're just coming into a quantum understanding of a creator, which is huge. We're getting out of the mythological Situation of you know God as a as a, in a book from the desert dwelling people of two thousand years ago, or, and we're entering the God understanding of tomorrow, the cosmic subatomic, which is a huge it's, it's a huge marker in where we are as human beings. We've we're crossing okay. over into another thing. Okay, so who can handle the 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 gravitas of of that theory? Who can well, handle it? What are we talking about? People like Elon Musk? People like you? It changes religion. The old religions die and become obsolete. They don't... It, these things become obsolete. Belief systems based on something someone wrote 10,000 years ago. Based You're talking about a scientific and cosmic paradigm shift. Yes. 
that alone, you're talking about a leap in human consciousness. Yes, totally. Right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Why don't I just kill Michael? <laughs> <laughs> the younger generation, the millennials, all these other people, they're ready to embrace it. That's how things change. I'm not so sure that some of these millennials can. The ones who are equipped with the old programming, they're going to be like, what the fuck does this mean? But I, I would argue that most of them are uh, equipped with new programming, um, even interiorly, even just in their DNA. I think they're ready to embrace it. This is what happens. We, humanity goes through epochs. I mean, dude, the humanity of the, of the Babylonian times would look like Planet of the Apes. It's a whole other human mindset as opposed to the industrial age. Even from the industrial age to now is a, is a different human mind. It looks like a, a sci-fi dream. You know, someone in the year 1600s being transported to now would fall to the ground and, and, and gripped his head with madness as to seeing the flying machines and people talking through wireless devices and, and ghosts and, and screens talking to each other. They couldn't grasp it. And it's the same thing going forward for the, the future, the future man, who's not bogged down by mythological religion and superstition, who is carried forward by quantitative data, scientific analysis, this is what we're entering into. You know, another thing he said was that autonomous vehicles, a hundred times or a hundred times safer than human beings, would be a reality. Are are going to be a reality within two years? In two years. Well, well, it's already happening. Like so, uh, my friend Vic that I'm renting from here got in a Tesla, an automated Tesla, right? Got it. Got it. Got like.
accessing will trump owning. Yet only in a science fiction world would a person own nothing at all. Most people will own some things while accessing others. The mix will differ by person. Yet the extreme scenario of a person who accesses all without any ownership is worth exploring because it reveals the stark direction technology is headed. Here is how it will work soon. I live in a complex. Like a lot of my friends, I choose to live in the complex because of the round-the-clock services I can get. The box in my apartment is refreshed four times a day. That means I can leave my refreshables, like clothes, there and have them replenished in a few hours. The complex also has its own node, where hourly packages come in via drones, robo-vans and robo-bikes from the local processing center. I tell my device what I need and then it's in my box, at home or at work, within two hours, often sooner. The node in the lobby also has an awesome 3D printing fab that can print just about anything in metal, composite, and tissue. There's also a pretty good storage room full of appliances and tools. The other day I wanted a turkey fryer. There was one in my box from the node's library in an hour. Of course, I don't need to clean it after I'm done, it just goes back into the box. When my friend was visiting, he decided he wanted to cut his own hair. There were hair clippers in the box in 30 minutes. I also subscribe to a camping gear outfit. Camping gear improves so fast each year, and I use it for only a few weeks or weekends, that I much prefer to get the latest, best, pristine gear in my box. Cameras and computers are the same way. They go obsolete so fast, I prefer to subscribe to the latest, greatest ones. Like a lot of my friends, I subscribe to most of my clothes, too. It's a good deal. I can wear something different each day of the year if I want. And I just toss the clothes into the box at the end of the day. They are cleaned and redistributed, and often altered a bit to keep people guessing. They even have a great selection of vintage t-shirts that most other companies don't have. The few special smart shirts I own are chip-tagged, so they come back to me the next day cleaned and pressed. I subscribe to several food lines. I get fresh produce directly from a farmer nearby and a line of hot, ready-to-eat meals at the door. The node knows my schedule, my location on my commute, my preferences, so it's really accurate in timing the delivery. When I want to cook myself, I can get any ingredient or special dish I need. My complex has an arrangement so all the ongoing food and cleaning replenishables appear a day before they are needed, in the fridge or cupboard. If I was flush with cash, I'd rent a premium flat. But I got a great deal on my place in the complex because they rent it out anytime I'm not there. It's fine with me since when I return, it's cleaner than I leave it. I have never owned any music, movies, games, books, art, or really worlds. I just subscribe to universal stuff. The arty pictures on my wall keep changing so I don't take them for granted. I use a special online service that prepares my walls for my collection on Pinterest. My parents subscribe to a museum service that lends them actual historical works of art in rotation, but that is out of my range. These days I am trying out 3D sculptures that reconfigure themselves each month, so you keep noticing them. Even the toys I had as a kid growing up were from Universal. My mom used to say, You only play with them for a few months. Why own them? So every couple of months, they would go into the box, and new toys would show up. 
Universal is so smart, I usually don't have to wait more than 30 seconds for my ride, even during surges. The car just appears, because it knows my schedule and can deduce my plans from my texts, calendar, and calls. I'm trying to save money, so sometimes I'll double or triple up with others on the way to work. There is plenty of bandwidth, so we can all screen. For exercise, I subscribe to several gyms and a bicycle service. I get an up-to-date bike, tuned and cleaned and ready at my departure point. For long-haul travel, I like these new personal hover drones. They are hard to get when you need them right now, since they are so new, but so much more convenient than commercial jets. As long as I travel to complexes in other cities that have reciprocal services, I don't need to pack very much, since I can get everything, the same things I normally use, from the local nodes. My father sometimes asks me if I feel untethered and irresponsible not owning anything. I tell him I feel the opposite. I feel a deep connection to the primeval. I feel like an ancient hunter-gatherer who owns nothing as he wends his way through the complexities of nature, conjuring up a tool just in time for its use and then leaving it behind as he moves on. It is the farmer who needs a barn for his accumulation. The digital native is free to race ahead and explore the unknown. Accessing rather than owning keeps me agile and fresh, ready for whatever is next. Yeah, so definitely like founder more than entrepreneur. I think I think entrepreneur has um, it's a bit of a overused term. So it's a and so it has sort of the same quality right. as I want to be rich, I want to be famous, and I think um, I think a better mindset for for these businesses is that there are some very important problems that you're trying to solve, and it turns out that uh, a new business is is a form in which you solve that problem, you could, but that it's driven by important problems you're trying to solve rather than, say, having a line item on your resume that says entrepreneur. I think one of the things that, uh, that I've come to sort of really appreciate over the years is how powerful uh, these uh, psychosocial forces in our society are that basically um, uh, push people's thinking into a you know, homogenizing uh, kind of direction. And you know, we've had this extraordinary history of bubbles 
in the last uh, few decades, which clearly had a psychosocial component where people were not thinking very much for themselves. You had an internet bubble in the 90s, an even crazier and more destructive housing and finance bubble in the 2000s. But uh, all these things were sort of characterized by extreme lack of critical thinking, assuming that other people had figured things out and uh, deferring to that in, in one way or another. And so whenever, whenever you see uh, a situation where it's very hard for people to think uh, critically on their own, you have to sort of wonder whether, whether there's something uh, very off on this. You have the sense that this psychosocial conformism or herd mentality or whatever you want to call it is stronger now than it was 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, or is it just the way democracy is? I do worry that there are elements of it that are, that are somewhat uh, stronger. We're, we're living in a sort of more globally connected, more transparent world. Um, it often seems more dangerous for people to um, express unconventional ideas because there's a record of that, and so you, people sort of uh, maybe are censoring themselves more than they were 50 years ago. I, I'd find that somewhat worrisome. One other way of getting at this question is, are these psychosocial forces greater now than they were, were in the past? Uh, one, one, one very odd uh, aspect of Silicon Valley is how many of the... Uh, founders of these companies seem to be suffering from mild forms of Asperger's or uh, seem to be sort of socially somewhat awkward. And I always think uh, that we should interpret this as an indictment of, of American society. What does it say about our society where anybody who is sort of a well-adjusted normal person is deterred from having any unconventional thoughts uh, very, very quickly? And so uh, I don't quite know what it would change to, what it required to, to change the, the sort of uh, malaise, but I, I do think that a world in which little changes and little there's little progress represents a uh, a radical departure from the past, and yeah. uh, and uh, it it is something we should fight really hard in in all 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 ways that uh, we we possibly can. You know, I I sort of wonder whether you know on some level the U.S. constitutional system can even work without some sort of growth. To me, um, you know, how well, how well our, our constitutional system even works. Works, 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 works. Peter, you've been involved in American higher education uh, for a long time uh, and uh, critical of it. What's wrong? Um, you know, if you define technology as doing more with uh, less, education is perhaps the most anti-technological aspect of our society today where you're getting the same at a higher and higher price. Right. You know, the, the, the real costs of higher education since 1980 have gone up about 400%, and uh, it's not clear the quality's gone up at all. On some level, the universities have found that they can just charge more every year. And so I think the, you know, the question is maybe, why has there not been more resistance to these, right. these price hikes? And I think it, again, in part goes to this failure of an imagination of an alternate future. And so talented people should all go to the same universities, learn the same things, pursue the same uh, types of careers. And, uh, and so I think we have, a, you know, if we had an internet bubble or a housing bubble, we certainly have an education bubble today. And it has, uh, it is, um, you know, bubbles are characterized by things costing more than they're worth. They're characterized by sort of intense psychosocial dynamics. So it's, it's very hard for people to suggest that you should not go to the best college you can get into right. because people don't know what else to do. And so I think the word education itself um, is this incredible abstract filler. It's perhaps better to think of education as, uh, 
as an insurance policy where it's probably not worth as much as people are paying for it, but they're scared of falling through the cracks in our society. And so as the cracks get bigger, we pay more and more for, uh, for insurance against it. That's the way it's advertised. And then I think the reality is that it's the exact opposite of an insurance policy. It is actually sort of this, this crazy zero-sum tournament in which what really matters is getting into the best schools. So I think at, at its core, it's perhaps a, a, um, a zero-sum tournament masquerading as, as, uh, as general insurance, and that's, that's incredibly dissonant. It is nevertheless, I think, heading towards a crisis of sorts where uh, it simply no longer works for the vast majority of uh, middle-class students who are amassing enormous amounts of debt uh, going to college. And so there is going to be enormous pressure. It's, it's, it's hard to say exactly what the timing on this is, but I think some of the online alternatives you know, are going to get more traction as these, uh, as these financial pressures start to mount. You know, one of my, uh, one of my sexism, moneyism, all this stuff stacked up to the ceiling, and we just have to take hold. I think it's happening. I think that democracy is the biological way to organize society, that people power is not a political appeal. It's a biological appeal. I mean, of course, it's what ants have 
They do it the way the genes want it done. They don't have an intellectual construct which then either a leading party or a military clique or a royal family or a bunch of gangsters get together and tell everybody how it's going to be. I think democracy is really in the name for do what works, free the people, channel the creativity of every individual into the social life of society not leaders and followers, not elites and masses, but an, a, a channeling of creativity into uh, the places where it needs to go. And I think that this is now unstoppable. I would say, how do you spend your day? How do you spend your life? And when they told me that they had a humdrum job and that they always go home at 6 o'clock and they watch a little TV and drink a beer and go to bed, I'd say, okay, here is your prescription. Uh, as your therapist, I tell you, you must go on Friday nights for at least two hours to the following singles bar. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to order a drink. But you must sit there. And this change in behavior is an opening for all kinds of things to happen. I mean, they will meet someone, not necessarily a lover, but maybe a business opportunity. Or, or someone in that bar will tell them that they have a place in Antigua. If they ever want to go there, they can use it. And then they will. And that will. So the important thing, you see, is to bust them out of their behavioral pattern. And the great thing about psychedelics is that they will do this, that we can self-treat um, ourselves to break down habitual patterns of behavior. Habit is the thing which is running us over the edge. I mean, there's all the yipping and yapping about drug habits, and I agree. I mean, I'm not into hard drugs at all. I find them detractors lead you off the track uh, but habituation to substances is only one part of the picture I mean we habituate to furniture styles to colors to people to flavors to television shows to automobile brands we are like uh, the addictive creature the most dangerous habits in the world today are not drug habits, they're ideological habits, ways of unexamined ways of thinking about reality. You know, uh, racism is an unexamined way of thinking about reality. Sexism, all forms of fascism, unexamined ways of thinking about reality. Busting up habitual behavior patterns is what will do it. That's why these historical changes... You know, I found this in Europe, that everybody is more flexible and more tolerant than people in America. And the reason is, twice in this century, Europe has been leveled by world war. If, if you don't think that gives you a kind of uh, a cool and an openness and a little more tolerance that we don't have. We're rigid. We're bomb them into the Stone Age people. That's how we deal with our problems. So I think, you know, in ourselves, in society, this habit thing has to be very much in our awareness. 
the guy who founded general systems theory, Ludwig von Bertalanffy, had a wonderful statement. He said, uh, people are not machines, but in every circumstance where they are given the opportunity to behave like machines, they will do it. They will do it. It's something about how the engine of life seeks to economize energy by using familiar patterns. And if you don't keep turning this and perturbing it and putting new factors into the mix, well, then you run down and, and consciousness contracts. And, uh, and Outside my window is a tree Outside my window is a tree there only for me And it stands in the grey of the city No time for pity For the tree
Congratulations uh, on, on becoming the Libertarian candidate uh, along with your running mate, uh, Bill Weld. I want to run through just quickly, if I can, a, a number of issues and get your take on it because I think a lot of people are just learning about you probably for the first time, uh, fairly or, or not. Uh, on the issue of abortion, where do you stand? Uh, I support a woman's right to choose. How can there be a more difficult issue that only should be addressed by the woman involved? Legalize marijuana for recreational purposes. Yes, and uh, very quickly on marijuana, uh, look, I think it makes the world a better place. Uh, on the medicinal side, you've got marijuana products that directly compete with legal prescription drugs that statistically kill 100,000 people a year. Not one documented death due to marijuana. And then on the recreational side, uh, legalizing marijuana, in my opinion, will lead to less overall substance abuse because it's so much safer than everything else that's out there, uh, starting with alcohol. And just to be clear, up until January 1st, you were actually the CEO of a recreational marijuana company called Cannabis Sativa, right? Yes, and for the reasons that I mentioned, I really do believe that legalizing marijuana does make the world a better place. Safer products uh, accomplishing the same results. Marriage equality, where do you stand? Uh, I absolutely support marriage equality. You'll need to be polling at 15% nationally to be invited to debate uh, Clinton and, and Trump. How do you like those chances? Really key to this whole equation is being in the polls. At the end of the day, the Presidential Debate Commission, which really um, oversees a rigged game, it's Democrats and it's Republicans, and they have no intention of th seeing a third party in the debates. At the end of the day, they'll say, hey, Gary Johnson, he didn't poll very well. What they won't say is, is that Gary Johnson wasn't in any of these polls. Uh, Governor Johnson, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, good luck to you. Hey, thank you, Anderson. Bless me with Reason TV, and today we are sitting down with Gary Johnson, Libertarian Party candidate for President of the United States. He's a two-term former governor of New Mexico as a Republican. Gary, thanks for talking to us. Nick, great being here. Thank you. So is that what uh, our America is talking about, those types of well, issues? Well, all those or? issues. And when you've got all of the Republican candidates talking about building a fence across the border, that is just wacko. 
We should make it as easy as possible for somebody that wants to come across the border to work to get a work visa. Abolish income tax, abolish corporate tax, uh, eliminate the IRS, and you know what? We're going to need tens of millions of immigrants to fill the jobs that will exist in this country as a result of zero corporate tax. What do you do if you, uh, you know, about the Solutions, number 18, Sunny Coats, coming at you. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, focusing your energy on the positive, positivity of the human spirit and reality and where we need to go. Please visit the website, em-lane.com. Uh, you can donate to the podcast there, show your support. And lastly, there's the Emerald Lane Company, of which the podcast is a product, but there's also a band. There's a music group, yes, for sure, that I lead. A lot of people don't know that. But we just put out a double EP called CMCS, which is Crystal Magic, Catalyst, seven songs done twice on a red electronic version and a blue live organic cosmic version. Available at all streaming platforms. Unprecedented concept. End of line.